Welcome to Post Break. My name is Chris Peterson, Board Secretary of the Post New York Alliance. So nice to see everyone back after our little two-week holiday break. This is our weekly discussion of all the different forces affecting, continuing to affect our industry right now during uh, kind of during the COVID and, and post-COVID times. Today's topic is a conversation about color finishing, demystifying the use of Rec 709. And if you don't know what Rec 709 is, you're in the right place. And now to introduce our moderator, Director of Business Development at Lightiron and PNYA board member, Freddie Hernandez. Thanks so much for that introduction, Chris. Uh, hi, everybody. We are so happy to be here. We, uh, we hope that you find the conversation insightful and uh, educational. Um, I want to introduce uh, my two guests, uh, Sim International Senior Colorist, Lucy Barbier Darnley, and Light Iron Senior Colorist, Sean Dunkley. Um, I wanted to start by just checking in and uh, seeing how the two of you are working uh, in these remote days. I uh, will start with Lucy. I just want to see how you have been as, as, uh, as we've all gone remote these days. So I, I've been back at the office actually since um, since phase two reopened, so June June twenty second. Um, but working from home for me has not been great. I'm not gonna lie, um, I didn't like it. Uh, I struggled with the latency of all the different um, streaming services. Um, it, in the environment as well at home, I had light spills everywhere i had reflections on my screen i had to work at night sometimes and i'm sure sean it's the same for you uh but for me it, it wasn't i wasn't really it wasn't really working basically um a little bit like the twilight zone right yeah exactly and i was working on the hdr job and because all the streaming services at the time were still 8-bit I just could not see visually where my highlights and my shadows sat. And it was just, it was just a bit of a nightmare. We made it work, but I was very happy <laughs> to come back. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. And uh, Sean, I know that you've been doing a little bit uh, of a mix. It's been uh, some home and, and some back in the facility. What, what has this whole transition been like for you? Uh, yeah, so it was definitely a struggle at first. Um, Took us a few weeks to sort of like everyone to sort of get up and running uh, but once we did i think we were pretty successful at home uh, i was able to sort of take on two new features uh, one documentary one uh one uh feature uh that uh we ended up doing most of it at home and then taking it to the facility to to finish it up with a theater pass after um, and then i was able to finish up a series for apple that i was currently in the middle of working when we had to pack everything up and go home so I, I had some successful opportunities, but, uh, but I mean, Lucy's absolutely right. It, it, it hasn't been without its challenges. Uh, so right now I'm sort of doing a mix. I'm doing sort of uh, the unsupervised stuff that I can get done at home on my system. I have a baseline system at home. Luckily, I sort of, uh, in the middle of this, uh, me and my family bailed to the suburbs. And so I have a basement where there's no light in it. Um, nice. So we, we have that advantage. So I've been able to sort of do a mix of uh, only going into the office when clients sort of need me in that environment uh, and then being able to work from home um, and, and do as best as we can both ways. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for the update, you two. And uh, since our conversation is about Rec 709, I know that over the years, uh, the color space has earned uh, a bit, of a, a bit of, rep of a reputation. And for some of those who might be a little unfamiliar with where Rec 709 got started, um, it's actually, its real name is ITU-R Recommendation BT709, which is a mouthful. And uh, at some point, someone very smart just said, why don't we just call it Rec 709? Uh, and it was started in 1990. And uh, it was developed and established as a, as a method for home video delivery. Um, but it's not certainly the only color space that exists in the world. There's uh, P3 and most recently HDR. And 
we obviously didn't want to ignore those. And I was hoping that maybe Sean and Lucy could, could take a shot at sort of giving like broad strokes of what each one is. And we could start with Lucy if you want to just give the audience a, a sense of what HDR is. Um, so HDR by definition is high dynamic range. So you've got higher contrast, greater details, um, and an extended gamut, an extended range. Uh, the color space for HDR is REC 2020, and the luminance is around 1,000 nits. Um, a nit, for anyone who doesn't know, is uh, the unit of measurement for luminance. Um, the problem is uh, most consumer TVs can only display up to 600 nits. Realistically, most of them is around 300, 400, so the technology in that sense is a bit flawed, but um, yeah, that's basically what HDR is. Very cool, very bigger, cool. And bigger, bigger, brighter, greater details. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you, I'm sure a lot of folks in our audience have seen an example of that when they're walking or, you know, back in the good old days when you used to be able to walk through a Best Buy and you saw one of those fancy LGs and it just looked like you were staring into the face of the sun. That's, that's it. That's yeah. A, yeah, that's essentially a sense of high dynamic range. Those crazy bright skies, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll have a follow up conversation on a different uh, Zoom call about all that fun stuff. Um, Sean, do you um, do you want to maybe give us some broad strokes about what P three is? Yeah, so P three is most commonly uh, represented in like the DCI spec, which is uh, projection. Um, it is a color space that's slightly bigger than seven or nine. Um, in like the 30s, some people really smarter, a lot smarter than me, sort of mapped out the entire uh, sort of visual perceptual color. Um, it's called a CIE chart. And uh, if you look at that, they sort of, they draw where the red, green, and blue primaries are. And so 709 is sort of this, this triangle that takes up about 35% of that chart. Uh, P3 is about, I, th I think it's about 50. And then REC 2020, what Lucy was just talking about, is, is closer to like 75% of that chart. Um, so P3 is, is, is a sort of greater range of values that a uh, digital projector can create uh, at that, uh, and, and uh, a television is sort of not as capable of creating it until most recently, you know, we have iPhones that can sort of do that thing now. Gotcha. That's very cool, man. Uh, you know, I got my start in uh, dailies eons ago, back when uh, we used to have spirits and film was the dominant format, we used to put it up and, and transfer everything. And that was actually the very first time I sort of got exposed to um, to this this term, the Rec 709. And at the time, it was it was associated with with a LUT. It was like, put the Rec 709 LUT on it, the approved Rec 709 LUT. And I was curious, you know, and again, we'll start with Lucy, you know, do you remember the very first time you, you worked with 709? Um, do you mean the footage that was shot on Rec 709 or? Uh, footage that was intended to be displayed in 709. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to daily, like you said, doesn't it? Um, because you do have that Rec 709 lot in, in your camera um, and you do your dailies in Rec 709. But like you said, it's the original color space kind of thing, the first encoding system. Um, and I think it's stayed that way. Um, obviously, yeah, Rec 709 is very limited range. And, you know, uh, a lot of people of DPs um, want to have a, bro a broader range available and they get stuck um, very soon with Rec 709. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, Sean, do you, do you have any recollection? Do you remember the, the first time you got to work in 709? Um, so, so, I mean, the first time, when I started, we were still four by three standard def televisions. So uh, it's shortly after we transitioned to HD and then when HD came out, that's when sort of 709 became the color space. Uh, and we sort of rolled with that for a while until P3 and XYZ became color spaces for theatrical and digital cinema. So it was kind of, you know, really, you know, my first year in the industry or whatnot that uh, 709 be kind of became like the, the standard uh, for HD video. 
And, you know, Lucy actually brought up a really good point a moment ago, whereas, um, you know, the modern day digital cameras, the REs, the REDs, the Sonys of the world, um, they're not traditionally capturing in 709. Do you, do you guys want to maybe, maybe walk us through um, what that means and how that translates eventually into 709? I think that is probably adding a little confusion. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the big parts of being a colorist is sort of taking taking this larger range and fitting it into a smaller range. Um, cameras today can capture like 14 stops. Uh, and our job is to sort of, uh, in an SDR world, is to fit that into what is something like eight stops. Uh, and then the same thing with color. If, if you capture, you know, airy wide color gamut, uh, and our job is to figure out how to manipulate those all those values that the camera is able to capture into that 709 triangle I spoke about earlier. And sort of, you know, that gives us a lot of flexibility on both sides to, to sort of really manipulate that image and make it, you know, like the filmmaker wants to intend for their project. Gotcha, gotcha. And I, I think we, uh, coming back to Lucy, I think we probably had some examples of what that could look like. It's obviously talking about color spaces is, is one thing, but you know, visual representation of it is, is probably the best way to show folks what these changes are. And I, I think you had some material there that you probably wanted to put up. Yes, so I um, recently finished a feature film called You Should Have Left, came out in, uh, in June, late June, I think, um, that was shot Alex on Alexa Mini, was it Alexa Mini, yeah. Um, so I'm just going to show you, I'm going to share my screen. So this is uh, the shot ungraded, but with the ARRI, the manufacturer um, log, K1S1. So obviously the DP and the director, they don't really want to look at a log image on set. So they put that lot in the camera. So that's how the image looks on the viewfinder, on their monitor, on set. Um, now you can see here that it's been slightly overexposed because it's always easier in finishing and for the colorist to bring down the highlights um, rather than bringing up the shadows because then you're into grain. Um, so what they do typically, they overexpose slightly and then they bring it all down um, with the luck to see where the highlights sit. So that's the shot um, ungraded with the K1S1 lot, and that's with the grade. Work seven line, but with the grade. Oh, that's pretty cool. And uh, that's, that's most likely the, the final look of the image, right? Is that yes. the delivered image? Yes. Okay. Right. Cool. And then I have another one. Again, same thing here. That's ungraded with the K1S1 lot. And that's the final graded image. You know, Lucy, one of the things I've always heard is uh, the reason the daily let is sometimes overexposed is to give editorial an opportunity to um, look at the image and pinpoint, I don't know, a boom mic stepping in or yes. detail that, that, mm -hmm. it, is, is that yes, would you agree about that? Yeah. Okay, that's very cool. Um, and then, you know, something I'm super curious about because the the example image, the way that the image looks coming out of the camera versus the final image are very different. Would you mind sharing um, some of the creative discussions that went into establishing that look, how you and the director NDP ultimately decided that's what the film was going to look like? Yes, so um, initially what happened is they sent me a mood board and then I had a chat with the DP, Angus Hudson, <coughs> sorry. Um, and then based on that, I kind of picked out a few shots that he liked, and then I kind of created a look lot, and then exported a few stills, sent it to him, and then we had another call, he gave me feedbacks. Um, and then he flew to New York, and he sat with me for two weeks. We did the grade um, for two weeks, eight hours a day, so it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a good, it was a great experience to be able to sit with the DP for two weeks because, you know, we, we got to go in, in details, like go over a few scenes, a few scenes multiple times and to really nail it down. And that was, that was really great. 
That's fantastic. And when you're when you're sitting with the cinematographer again, back in the good old days when we can all be together, um, is that dynamic like, you know, you sit at the console in the room and, you know, the DP, you know, you put up the image, the first scene and I don't know, does the DP just point to a section of the frame and say, I'd like this brighter, darker? Is it more general um, conversations about like the mood or the look? There are two two steps. I mean, this for this particular film, um, so we sat down, we kind of worked on the on the look first, uh, mm -hmm. not really thinking about the windows or like anything to key. I was really about the about the tone, the overall tone of um, of the shots of the film. Gotcha. Um, and then we apply that to everything and then we go back and then yes, we look at the windows, you know, isolate elements that we need to key um, and then come back again and then back again until we're happy with every single frame. Gotcha. And, and last question, uh, that grade there that you just showed us, was, was that intended for theatrical or was that for right, that HDR? Rex 709. That was, so that film was intended for Rex 709. Yeah, but the nice. director specifically wanted um, all the three versions, the P3, the Rex 709, the HDR, to look the same. So for HDR, he did not want blown out highlights. Um, he wanted three versions to look the same. Gotcha. I, I guess that's a, that's a really important note too. You know, part of a part of a colorist's job is to make that translation, that visual translation, because you know, the three color spaces are so different. You know, P3 is projected. It's not as tri traditionally, uh, yep. correct me if I'm wrong, it's traditionally not as contrasty. Exactly, because yeah. it diffuse light versus glass. So it's just a completely different feel. Sean, I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, turn my attention to you now. I know that uh, you had some work that you also wanted to highlight to the audience to kind of give them a sense of what K1S1 versus final 709 uh, could look like. Okay, so so yeah, so this this is uh, just the uh, image out of the camera then has the K1S1 LUT on it. Um, a LUT is essentially just a mathematical equation that says uh, pixel zero in and gives it a value on the way out. Um, and so uh, Aerie has to manufacture these LUTs so that it works in, you know, they can put this LUT on any sort of circumstance. It can be a night shot and LUT works. It can be you know, bright day, sunlight, and the LUT works. So Aerie has to be sort of very careful. Red has to be careful, Canon, Sony, whoever, uh, when they're creating these things. Uh, but uh, what we run across a lot is that um, directors, DPs, uh, sort of get these, sort of the look that these LUTs uh, create, sort of they, they hone into this being 709. Uh, and so when you approach them and say, we need to do a 709 pass, or we need to work in 709 for these, circumstances, they sort of freak out and they say, I don't want my show to look like that. Um, so that's, you know, one of the big sort of misnomers we're trying to like put out there that, that uh, what you get out of the camera is it's 709, but it's Aries just broad stroke version of 709. Uh, and so uh, if I click on, you know, some of these stills here going back and forth, you can see they're sort of very different images uh, between the airy lot and then the final grade that the director and sort of cinematographer uh, wanted implied. Yeah, I guess that's something uh, I, I think is probably important to touch on the the the, the misconception that um, 709 is a is a look uh, versus a, a color space. And you know, I, I think it's because the term is used in dailies, which is you know often this this just dismissed uh, look because everyone knows it's going to get thrown away. Um, and, uh, you know, and then it's associated with like the home video, which, you know, in the, in the feature world, no one really prioritizes. Am I right about assuming that? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, I think uh, I specifically had to, like, you know, in a few months ago when we had these sort of stay at home orders and we had to work from home and figure out solutions, um, a lot of sort of, we sent iPad Pros to our clients and ask them to sign off on things. And that's sort of when we had this, well, we can't work in 709 freak out. Um, and so I had to go down this road of explaining, you know, you watch Game of Thrones, it looks incredible and it's 709. Um, and, and a lot of people sort of just, just associate this sort of one lot out of the camera as 709. And it, you know, P3 is this, you know, bigger, better thing. So it, it is more cinema, you know, cinematographic. Uh, and 
uh, it, it's really just uh, not the case. Uh, 709 can look amazing, and uh, it's sort of what we're used to looking at, you know, on our TVs at home anyway. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, it's probably our most used color space, right? Phones, tablets, uh, computers. Um, I mean, I think 709 is, is all around us. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, until recently, we had, you know, iPads now and, and iPhones now can do sort of greater spectrums of color, um, but that's only sort of a recent development, for sure. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that, um, that tip is, is, you know, is really good. Um, using that sort of as a springboard for the next um, sort of topic. Uh, is there something we can give, say, post-supervisors, because um, I know there's probably a few listening, uh, and arm them with some sort of information because ultimately they sort of become the funnel for, uh, you know, conversations between the cinematographer and eventually the colorist. Yeah. And sometimes there's trepidation around 709. Is there something yourself or Lucy would recommend to, to arm them with a better understanding of the color space? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, for me, I would, I would say for HDR specifically, it's good to have the PPS around um, because creatives in the studio don't really agree on how they want their show to look in HDR. Most of the time, uh, studios are expecting, you know, the film or the show to use the entire range. So they want the highlights to go crazy high or higher than the creative want them to be. So, you know, I think it's important to have them around and kind of have that communication between the studio and the creative, you know. And, you know, keeping 709 is sort of the, the centerpiece. Um, you could probably apply the same philosophy, right? Because if you know you're, you're gonna be delivering in 709, you sort of, you know, you always play to your strengths. So, you know, do you think there's any benefit to like, I don't know, visiting the facility again in the good old days when you could, um, asking questions, if there's any test footage available, do you guys find value in doing those things with, you know, the post soups and um, the non-creatives, if you will? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, um, you know, when, when the world is sort of a little bit more normal, and if you're a post super, uh, you should go into a facility and, and you should look at an image on an iPad in 709 and, and put the same image up on a projector in P3. And so you can understand sort of the differences you're presenting to your, your cinematographer uh, as, as sort of remote working solutions uh, for, the, for the sort of this new world. Very cool. And um, I wanted to ask the following because I know that uh, there's most likely some aspiring cinematographers watching, but um, is there anything the two of you uh, would recommend for young up and coming cinematographers, someone that might be interested in cinematography? Because, you know, nowadays it goes so hand in hand with a colorist, you know, the, the two positions are almost serving each other. Um, is there anything yourself or Lucy would, would recommend as advice if you're just starting out? Um, I'd say you should uh, reach out to sort of the post companies, the, the camera rental you know, companies and sort of try to build those bonds. Um, I've seen so many uh, younger careers just shoot up so fast because they've had you know, relationships uh, with Airy CSC or Panavision or something like that. Um, and then the same thing on post. Uh, you should try to develop relationships with post vendors so that you, you know, if you have a short film and, and I have some time at night, then you know, it's, it's easy to get that in the door versus uh, a cinematographer that we haven't worked with before. Gotcha. Lucy, any, any thoughts? Um, I think for aspiring colorists, um, I would say if you're working in the post house, I would practice, you know, grade as much as you can and uh, show your work to your mentors or to your colorist colleagues and get their opinion and, you know, keep practicing. That's the only way you're going to get better. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, that that was actually going to be my next uh, my next topic because uh, I know there are folks in the audience that are interested in color um, as a profession. Um, I know the two of you probably had similar career paths. Um, I know Sean obviously because I've worked with you that 
you know, you got your start in dailies. Do you, do you, would you recommend that that's sort of a good gateway currently, the way that the landscape is set up? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's most important uh, that, you know, you, you speak your mind and tell people your end goal. Um, I see so many sort of younger uh, aspiring colors come in and after two years of working at Light Iron, uh, they leave and then everybody's like, well, what's the problem? And, and they didn't advance because they didn't tell anybody, you know, they wanted to be a colorist or they wanted to be an engineer. Uh, they just sort of stayed quiet and worked hard. And that's great and all, but you need, you need people in your corner. Uh, and so uh, I, would, I would recommend just anybody come in and, and uh, if they work at Light Iron, come and tell me you want to be a colorist, then I have no problem, uh, you know, uh, sort of ushering and, and teaching. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of uh, our industry that doesn't really have that sort of uh, apprentice sort of role that a lot of other industries have. Um, and so you can kind of create that role just by asking questions of the people above you and creating that mentorship. That's very cool. That's very cool. And uh, you work on base light, is that right? So, so I know that that box is, you know, more on the, the senior end of the spectrum. Um, would you, would you recommend like, I don't know, someone get their hand on Resolve? I mean, I know these days even Premiere has a, has a basic color correction tool available in their suite anything that you can learn what, uh, you know, film grade is and lift down again. And, uh, you know, any of these tools that are the same across all, all the boxes are similar. Uh, it's, it's really, they're all very similar. It's just about where the buttons are. Um, and you can sort of learn that, you know, after you understand the, the theory behind why you're pushing that button. Gotcha. Gotcha. And what about you, Lucy? I, I, uh, can you share what box you work on? Resolve. Ah, very cool. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, you know, Resolve has changed a lot over the years. I know um, that uh, Blackmagic has evolved to sort of embrace a lot of um, other services. I know that you can, you can do your online as well as your offline on there. Um, and I think they've got like a sound mix option that's available in the software now. But um, I imagine you probably just use it specifically for the color on, on most likely like a Linux setup, right? Yes. Um, mostly the color page. I mean, you know, the tools have been pretty much the same uh, for the past few years. They've added a few cool features, but you know, yeah, the grading features are pretty much the same. Oh, that's fantastic, guys. Um, I guess the 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 next piece of uh, uh, discussion is, um, you know, how do you two feel uh, Rex 709 uh, will evolve as we look, say, the next five, 10 years down the road. Um, you know, there's some chatter that uh, it'll just become obsolete. It'll become like, you know, a four by three, the way we look at four by threes these days, um, or it'll go the way of like, you know, digi and just completely be obsolete and replaced by something else. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, we're, I think we're already starting to see that uh, sort of the Netflix, Amazons of the world, uh, their hero pass is, is an HDR Rec 2020 uh, version. And then their afterthought is, is the 709 trim of that. Um, I think we'll start to see more studios go that way. And then eventually when TV manufacturers sell enough of these TVs, it will be, you know, like 10 years ago when, when we sort of lost that four, th four by three version that everybody used to have as their hero. Yeah, I'm... It's a difficult question, I'll say, because yes, the industry is pushing towards that. But the problem is the consumer TVs just aren't there. You know, a lot of people can't afford um, HDRE TV. Um, and, you know, most TV can only do 200 to 400 max. So I don't know. I feel like Rex 709 is the main deliverable right now five years, 10 years, um, five years, I think it will still be the case. 10 years, I'm not sure. I just need that. I just think they need, in, t in terms of like the technology behind the, the consumer use, I think they need to step up their game. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of folks um, uh, feel that the, the consumer television manufacturers, LG, Samsung, uh, the Sonys of the world sort of drive that train um, in your experience being on the, on the high-end delivery front, um, have you seen um, 
you know, that sort of be the, the narrative, like, you know, LG saying, you know, we're only going to support the following resolution or color spaces and forget about 709. Do you, you guys think anything like that might happen? Uh, well, 709, because it's smaller and, uh, you know, it's only 100 nits versus 1,000, anything that they create uh, that can fill a Rec 2020 with 1,000 nits uh, can also create this, you know, lower version 100 nits. So, so I don't think it will go away because of the display technologies. I think it's sort of more of the, the Netflix and Amazons that will start requesting it, uh, or as they do already, and uh, it will go away just because they will stop doing, you know, these seven or nine passes eventually. Well, that's fantastic intel, guys. Uh, Chris, I, I think we're good to go into the Q&A. Yeah, we've got some good ones here. We've got some good questions. Thank you, everyone, for these. And um, let's dive right into them. Can we rewind for just a second for maybe some of our younger viewers or, or people who are not as directly um, involved in color grading, could you explain what a LUT is? Sean, you, you explained it in kind of mathematical terms, but in, in layman's terms, what was a LUT and what's the point of it if we're doing a full color grade anyway? Yeah, so, so a LUT is a, well, it's a lookup table and essentially it's exactly, it's a mathematical equation. It is, it is these are the values in and then these are the values that we're gonna put out. And so it's, it's sort of like I explained earlier that as a colorist, our job is to take, you know, these, I don't know, uh, 1 billion colors and fit them into 16 million colors. Uh, and so uh, its job is to do the same thing, you know, but just without having, without having a conscious and without, without making choices. It just says, you know, one equals four. And so red equals, you know, this shade of red or something like that. Um, so, so that's uh, it's a lookup table, and it's a bunch of values in and a bunch of values out. Something that, that might help folks understand what a LUT is is, uh, um, and I hate using this analogy, but it's a bit like uh, an Instagram filter. You know, if you're shooting something, you need you need it to look like something while you're going into dailies. You put this LUT on, use the term filter, and then someone has you know editorial at that point has something decent to look at. In an ideal world, uh, Lucy and Sean would be a part of that conversation so they could dictate the terms of the mathematical equation that Sean um, was just walking us through. But uh, hopefully that sort of makes sense for the audience. And could that LUT ever differ significantly from what the final color pass ends up looking like? Sure, I think you know that that's a problem we have a lot of times on jobs that uh, don't do dailies uh, with us, you know, that do dailies on their own and they attach a, uh, a LUT that they don't know where it came from or something like that. Uh, and a lot of times a cinematographer or a, or a director, mostly a director will get very attached to that LUT uh, throughout editing for six months. Uh, and then when they come to me, uh, you know, the, the, it's sort of, it's a, it's a fight to get them away from this thing that they've been attached to for six months, even though that was sort of never their real idea. So, so there's definitely some, some downfall to, to LUTs as well. People get attached to that initial look, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you cut something for six months and that's your movie and that's your baby, you know, you come to color it and you change it and it's, you know, now it's very different. Would you, uh, would you agree with that, Lucy? Have you had that experience? <laughs> yep, yep, I, I have it uh, a lot, pretty much every single time. There's a fight between a... Uh, I noticed between the, the cinematographer and the director. Um, yeah. Yeah, they get attached to the dailies and the lots. And then when you change it too much, you're like, oh, that's, that's, that's yeah. not what it's supposed to look like. You know, something, um, something that I found helpful in, in you know, my, my previous years as a producer was uh, giving the creatives an opportunity to come into the finishing bay and sort of see the very thing they've been looking at in editorial in a completely different way. So you know, in this scenario, a Lucy and a Sean will have taken a scene and uh, done a pass with the creative input of what the final image is supposed to look like. And that sort of helps um, start managing uh, the expectation almost, if you will. So there isn't this, this big reveal at the end and everyone feels like they've been duped. Like that's not my movie, but so 
you do those at instances, I find it helps to really take the pressure off what um, ultimately ends up being a, a, a fight. Terrific. And what are some of the best or what are some of your favorite uh, calibration hardwares and softwares? Uh, I don't personally calibrate uh, my X300, but I heard that eCal is a good one. I can't say much to this. Yeah, I can't either. <laughs> I sort of leave, I leave that to the hands of engineering. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Chris, just a little clarification. Uh, you know, in a, in a typical environment uh, for whoever asked that question, Lucy and Sean uh, work within a facility and the engineering teams at those facilities are uh, normally tasked with uh, calibrating their X300s, their LGC9s, uh, and in a projection environment, the, uh, the, the projector, the bulb, essentially. Sure, of course. Um, Rewinding a bit again, could we have a, a quick layman's term definition? What is HDR? Why does it matter? Should it always be on? What's the decision making process around that? So HDR is basically a much bigger, like, like Sean explained earlier, you have REC 709, you have P3, and then you have REC 2020 which is much bigger. So you have a lot more range in HDR. Um, so high dynamic range versus standard dynamic range. Um, vendors, I mean, distributors like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, it's their main um, deliverable. So they are pushing the industry for everything to be HDR some limitations with the consumer TVs, as we said before. Um, but it's going in that direction. I don't know if that answers the question. I think it helps. Uh, you know, something that I, I think would add a, a little more context is, uh, you know, when you were doing this example, I think that was really great. Um, what she's referring to here is uh, the color spectrum. And if you ever look at a color spectrum, it looks like a, a weird lopsided uh, triangle I, I have a almost. thing I can share here. If yeah. There you go. <laughs> so so, when Lucy so that's was the thing I sort of explained earlier. Yeah, that's, that's the, some scientists, uh, just, you know, tried to map every color that the human vision could see in 1931. And then what we do is we create these triangles between our RGB values. Uh, and we, they try to create them so that display manufacturers can, can create TVs uh, or displays where uh, you can fill up the entire triangle. And so in that example, uh, REC 709 is the, the, the smallest line, the biggest triangle on the edge. And because it's, uh, it's capturing more spectrum, there's more light, there's more colors. It's, so in layman's terms, it's brighter, it's poppier. And as, as everyone in the audience uh, goes through their career, if you're at the beginning, you'll find that um, and I'm sure Lucy and Sean can talk to this, you'll find that cinematographers uh, do not enjoy brighter and poppier. No. <laughs> and when working with a client on a scene with regard to some of the examples you've spoken about thus far, um, on average, how many optional looks do you like to present to a client? Uh, it really depends. Uh, I. I don't like to give them too many choices um, because everybody does have a budget of time they're allocated, um, but enough where they feel like they've explored this sort of um, the, the vastness of, of direction of color. Um, one way I try to approach it is I will give a, a client, you know, five different looks and then I will tell them to pick one of those and then we'll do three versions of that one. So we sort of climb a tree and find, find like a branch that we want to go down and just keep exploring those branches. Um, and then in that sort of process, it's just as important, you know, to tell me that they hated version one as well, you know, as much as they, they really like version four. Because that, you know, that, that eliminates that entire side of the tree. Yeah, I think for me, uh, the, the process, at least before COVID, um, would be we just sit down and we just start from scratch. We work on the look, we choose, we pick a few shots and then we just go from there. And um, 
we do it live. Um, I rarely send, I mean, COVID has changed everything, obviously, um, but it was all live um, for me before. So I wasn't sending different looks uh, to the clients who all happen in the room and we create it together. Great. Um, this uh, may be another example of more of an engineering uh, level question, but how long do you see Rec 709 being the standard? I, I think as long as, uh, as long as Sony keeps making TVs, that do. <laughs> yep, yeah, I, uh, I think that's a good answer. It's, I think it's just going to stay for a longer period of time. Yeah, it's not going anywhere for now. Sure. Good to know. And does 2K versus 4K versus 8K versus fill in the K have any effect or do they need to be taken in, in, into a, account when grading P3 versus 709? So, so those are resolutions. Uh, so they are separate than your color space. Um, so they would deal with more clarity and sharpness in your image than, than actual uh, shade of red or shade of green kind of thing. Um, you can have, you know, you can put a 2K versus an 8K image right next to each other and color wise, as long as they're both seven or nine, they're gonna look identical. Uh, what you may get is, you know, a, a particular type of sharpness or, or smoothness or roundness um, to the image that, that would, would be from the extra uh, pixels. Yes. Um, I would say most of the time it's, it's not noticeable enough um, for me, I think, to make a big difference. Though. That's what I would say. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good point to highlight that uh, 709 is, is um, though it got its start in HD, um, it is not married to any resolution because as Sean said, color space is one thing and then resolution are separate. You just never know in one setting's gonna. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so here's an interesting one, um, depending on the project, of course, but um, the question reads, these days, a lot of editors are asked to do a color pass for low budget work. Um, so the offline editorial having, having to do a color pass any recommendations right. for an editor who wants to learn how to get better at just the basic ABCs, one, two, threes of uh, basic color grading for these circumstances? I mean, I would say just practice, you know, Resolve um, is free, Resolve Lite at least is free. So just get your hands on anything and just grade and then see how your images turn out. And if you don't like them, just redo them and get people's opinion and tutorials as well really help. Yeah. Yeah, I would say you practice a lot. Um, uh, having a scope helps so that you can understand uh, if you move the blacks, you know, where on the sort of scope uh, it moves the signal. Um, and then I would say that if it's an editor trying to color, they're at a disadvantage because they're not working with the, the large space that we have. Likely they're working on an image that already has a 709 lot baked into it. So they're not sort of able to manipulate the image as much as, as we are when we conform from the uh, original captured media. And kind of tagging on to this question, um, for our viewers who might be lost by this conversation so far, they've, they've identified five or six terms they have to, they want to delve into deeper. What are some of the best information sources for them out there short of enrolling in film school or engineering school or where do you typically go to, to keep your knowledge up? Uh, there, there's a few sort of websites and forums out there. Um, there's one called Lift Gamma Gain. Uh, there's a lot of sort of, there's posts on there about technical stuff that I don't even understand all the way down to, you know, similar questions of an editor trying to color for the first time. Um, I think I would say Mixing Light. Mixinglight.com is really good as well for colorists. Lots of, lots of tutorials and um, tips on 
you know, for HDR, Dolby Vision, like all the new technologies and just basics as well. Terrific. Um, here's one. In my experience with Rec 709, it does not do reds well. Reds tend to look orange. Do you find this to be true and what is your workaround? Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of, if you looked at that sort of CIE chart I, I uh, shown, um, it, red is sort of like a desaturated color. And I, I you know, I, I struggle with it all the time uh, with clients that have uh, all red teams or something like that, them wanting it more red and richer. Uh, and so it's, a, it's about just sort of getting darkness and contrast into that red shade uh, so that it feels sort of more red than, than this desaturated sort of pink color. And forgive me if this has been covered. Um, there's, there's been a lot of terms going back and forth, but on your shows, are the DPs monitoring HDR on set? Uh, not on my, the shows that I've delivered recently, no, they, they are not, or they were not. I, I have a mix. I have a few shows that are capture, or, you know, viewing on set in HDR, and then, but the far majority of them are not. Okay. Yeah. That, that solution is uh, very, very, very young. It's out there, but uh, it's early. It's expensive as well. And it's also, <laughs> yeah, incredibly expensive. Yeah. yeah. And a, a little bit on kind of the working conditions of, of a colorist. Are colorists typically part of any union? Not that I'm aware of, no. No. And this is a fun one. I'm glad someone asked this because I always wonder about it. Um, what TV do you each use at home? <laughs> Go ahead, Sean. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Uh, I, I, have a, I have a Samsung. Uh, I put on Netflix shows that I've uh, colored all the time and calibrate to what I think it used to look like when I colored it. Uh, but it is, it is certainly, you know, my, my, my gear in the office is, is much, much better. <laughs> I have a Sony, uh, a eight series 45. My, my wife wanted the one with the frame around it. So that's why I got that. <laughs> I didn't get a choice. And here's one um, we kind of always like to touch on remote workflow questions or how are we all working during COVID kinds of questions. So um, the question reads, how are you folks dealing with live remote color review sessions or do you just post to Frame.io or something similar? So I've, I have a little bit of a mix. Uh, I have uh, some shows that are doing Frame.io or uh, another service called Motion. Uh, I don't know if it's Moxian or Motion. Um, and then some that, that we use Streambox uh, uh, for, for live sort of color grading sessions. So it's sort of a mix of, of both. Uh, we use, typically we use Clearview um, for SDR for Streambox and if HDR, um, Streambox Chroma. Here's one kind of jumping around here. I work in documentary news, but often work with cinematographers who do not like to shoot in Rec 709 and prefer to work in RAW. However, we need smaller file sizes for post. Mm -hmm. Is there something you would recommend here as best practice? That's a, that's a tough one there. <laughs> it's a tough one because you know, the budget is a, is a big part of it, how much you can afford, how much you know, the space, uh, I mean, I've just finished a um, fe uh, feature doc for Showtime, and most of it was shot on Rec 709. And you try to make it look like film, but you struggle. Um, but that's all, you know, they couldn't afford to shoot raw. Yeah, I mean, I would think there are camera manufacturers out there. If you shoot Airy or something like that, you can record uh, two streams, and you can record the 709 out and also the, the ProRes Log C. Uh, so there are sort of options for that. For, for maybe so uh, for the uh, more budget conscious projects that might be hard to get into uh, those high-end cameras. And we're getting near the end here. Um, do you use a personal saved node tree 
for every shot or do you change your node tree structure depending on the shot? I, I change it for every, well, well I, have a, I have a base for every shot, um, but every project I work on is completely different. Uh, it drives assistance crazy. Um, so I sort of develop a new process every time. And, and I'm sorry, before we delve further into this, can we just do the, the ABC one, two, three of, of this topic again real quick? What, what do these terms mean? Yeah, so, so uh, no trade is more specific to resolve, but it is, uh, it is layers, uh, much like Photoshop layers, uh, where layer one is balanced, layer two is, you know, uh, shadows, layer three is highlights, something like that approach. So, some colors work with them. Uh, uh, they sort of take this uh, this mapping of of how they're going to adjust the image, and they uh, you know paste it across every shot in the movie, and then start that way. And then some do not. And uh, Lucy can probably speak to this a little bit better. But if you've you've ever worked in Resolve and you're looking at uh, the 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 map of color, if you will, it looks very much like a tree. It looks like it's snaking up, and depending on Lucy's uh, creative direction, it'll branch off. There'll be nodes here, there'll be nodes there. And so the, the term node three, uh, tree, excuse me, uh, refers to that because it very much looks like a tree with a bunch of branches. And yeah. it's, you know, like a, the, it's like in visual effects, you know, you've got multiple nodes that could batch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that's a great example. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I try to keep it tidy. So like one line, then another line, then another line. I try to not keep, let it go. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I don't have a, a template. Um, it changes on a project basis. Well, I think that's part of like the creative fun of, of coloring, right? Because if everything were, if you approached everything the same, you, you know, that, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So the creative aspect of it all is, you know, every project is brand new and you just kind of, you get to try new, new things. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, you take your experiences from fast films to your new film, but uh, but the but the the end image is something different. Yeah. Terrific. Well, th that is just about it for our our viewer Q and A. Unless uh, Freddie, you'd like to touch on any other topics? No, I think that was it. I think that was uh, that was a great conversation. I want to thank Sean and Lucy for giving us uh, you know an hour of their time. Um, obviously, the topic of color is a very nuanced and deep conversation. So, you know, while we tried to keep it to broad strokes, there is, I mean, you know, we could probably do a whole school about this, and some folks do, 